Hi there, it happened in Hollywood listeners. This is your host, Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. This week, we have the first major CGI film of all time from 1982 and Studio Disney. All that and more on It Happened in Hollywood. Welcome back. I'm very excited about this one. I'm excited about all the films we do, but uh, this one really uh, tickled uh, my inner 10-year-old, which is how old I was when I originally saw Tron. Tron came from Disney, so it had a huge launching pad, uh, but it was unlike anything they had ever done. And as we speak to its writer-director, Steven Lisberger, today, you'll realize that this really was a leap off of a cliffside for uh, a company that had gotten quite safe uh, and child-oriented in the uh, late 70s and early 80s. But uh, Steven came out of uh, animation and uh, had this vision uh, with the rise of video games for a hybrid uh, computer, hand-drawn, live-action adventure, very inspired by Star Wars and uh, Wizard of Oz and those kinds of things of going through the looking glass into this fantastical world. In this case, it's into a video game. Um, It's very technically complicated episode, um, but if, hang with me because um, I wanted him to explain this in the plainest of language, how he achieved such a breakthrough film, a film that led the way for Pixar and basically all animation as we know it now and all special effects and basically, you know, filmmaking has become synonymous with CG. But back then, it was a very different situation. Even explaining to people what he envisioned or how he was going to achieve it was something that flew over most creatives' heads. So sit back and enjoy. This is Steven Lisberger and Tron. Steven Lisberger, welcome uh, to It Happened in Hollywood. Uh, this is so... I, I can't believe it. There's certain people that I are like godlike in, in my... You know, that they're not even human beings, that they put together certain things from my childhood. And one was the creator of of uh, Choose Your Own Adventure books, who we had on uh, last season. And now I put you in that same realm of of these godlike figures, but who have come down to earth to to share some of their their knowledge with us. So thank you for coming. Well, that's very nice of you. And if I get much older, I won't be a human being anymore either. Um, well, that's a little extreme to be in that category but i'll take it you should take it because it's it might not actually be like factual but it's how it it sits in my brain and tron when i was a kid i i still remember i remember who i went with i remember what theater it was at and i remember you know the effect it had on me and um it is such a a forward thinking i mean i just can't believe it and i watched it again last night and it's it holds up 
and and I and all the ideas, the AI, the uh, the security breaches, and 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 things like that, like all the issues surrounding computers that we are dealing with on a very real level right now, were all explored in Tron. I, I mean, it's radical. I, first of all, is this movie in Museum of Modern Art? Is it in the National Film Registry? Because it feels so landmark to me and so important. Yeah, well, that's part of the Disney problem. I mean, you know, as as I mentioned, there's a there's a fabulous Tron ride, which is now at uh, Disney World. It was it is in Shanghai and China, too. And um, architecturally and just aesthetically, I think it's one of the most amazing structures built of the last few years. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the scale is gigantic. It's so amazing. It, you know, it's in some aspects because it's kinetic. It goes beyond Frank Geary. But because it's Disney, everybody, you know, says, well, Disney is, you know, not part of the avant-garde. And we encountered that phenomena when it, with the, the film, too, because people weren't ready for something that avant-garde and ahead of its time to come from Disney Studios. I mean, the sense was that Disney was a place you go to for nostalgia. And I think, I mean, I'll tell you one example. I was actually at a screening of Tron and a uh, when it was over, a man got up and he had some like 10 year old kids with him and he came out somehow they knew, I guess it was kind of a press screening kind of thing. And he he lambasted me for making a film, a Disney film where his kids asked him about the film and he couldn't answer all their questions. <laughs> and he was really mad about that. And, but at the same time, you know, you looked at the 10 year old kids and you could tell they were going, oh, this is pay dirt. I have found something that my father can't, doesn't know all the answers <laughs> to. I better get into this. Yeah. Um, of course. And now you look at kids now and they're they, they leaps and bounds ahead of their parents in terms of uh, their facility with with technology. So you, you 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 did strike pay dirt. That is what kids want or where they were heading. So how old were you when you saw it? Uh, well, I'm 50 and it came out 82. So I was 10. Oh, that's a sweet spot. Yeah. I mean, the, the kids that were around 10. I mean, half of them went on to have careers in, you know, CG or computers or, you know, programmers. Um, so, yeah, it, you had to be the right age for the film. If you were the older generation doesn't really want to find out they don't know everything. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's let's get into it, because I think most people know Tron, but they might not know Steve Lisberger. So. Tell us a bit about your your background and, and who you are. Well, one of the reasons that uh, Tron got made at Disney was because its its foundation was really animation. I mean, I went to film school. I, I grew up in New York and Pennsylvania and went to school in Boston at the Museum of Fine Arts School, where I was in the film program, actually, if you can believe it, for five years, but for a considerable part of those five years, I already had my own studio and was doing my own films. But um, I worked in live action. I studied live action, but it was really animation that I cared about the most. Um, I, there was something about the, the, the studio aspect of it that 
I really loved and I still miss the the camaraderie, the you know, that it's a team effort. Um, live action tends to be more a bunch of, you know, hired hands, hired gunslingers, and they come together and then they split up for the next project. But um, we did a, we worked for um, NBC and did a, a special called the Animal Olympics about the Olympics in 1980. And that was supposed to take us to our next project, which was Tron. And at that time, the company, you know, had about 70 and my company had about 70 employees and we wanted to make Tron independently. But because the Olympics was boycotted in 1980, ironically, because we protested Russia invading Afghanistan, which then we did, <laughs> um, the uh, we couldn't do it independently and we needed someone to help us. And we ended up contacting Disney right away. And we were very lucky because they had a recent new head of production. And uh, as Tom Wilhite says, he wasn't experienced enough to say no. So they were very intrigued because when we walked in, we had all the aspects of production had all been addressed. I had every cent I owned in the world in the project. And you know, we had a script that we've been working on for years. We had the whole movie storyboarded. We had sample reels of the computer animation that yeah, up to this point was a mystery. And um, the readers at the studio read it, really liked the script, and the studio was excited about it. And then we had to do a test to prove that the approach that I wanted to use was valid. And uh, that test took a couple nerve-wracking months. And to everyone's surprise, except mine, but I was a little surprised, it worked out really well. And the studio at that time was so different than it is today. I was, it was a, a sleeping giant. It was, you know, the, the right out of Sleeping Beauty, there might have been rose vines growing everywhere. And uh, they, they, were, they were unsure about which way to go. And they were shocked about Star Wars being so successful. And um, they wanted to take a chance on trying to get to a different audience than they, you know, normally attracted. And so we walked in at the right time with the right project. Now, this was it was a couple years after I remember the black hole was a big uh, influence on me. Um, and I, I felt like there was some design kinship to black hole. Uh, especially Maximilian and the um, the alien, uh, or what do you call it, alien uh, paranoids or whatever, those uh, robots that yeah, float around? space paranoids. Space paranoids. Yeah, well, it, it's funny you should mention Black Hole because when I did that 30-second test for Tron, I used one of the robots from uh, Black Hole just as a prop. And uh, just a footnote, no one has ever been able to find a copy of that test. Somehow it got lost in the Disney archives. But actually, the black hole wasn't really much influence at all. Um, you know, I was sort of, I would say, more influenced, obviously, by Star Wars. Everybody was influenced by Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And um, but our roots were, again, went back primarily to animation. And um, I, I was excited about computer animation. I had seen an early test at MIT in Boston, and I had been talking to the heads of these 
pioneering computer animation companies, I, Magi in upstate New York, and also talked to the, the founders of Pixar on Long Island, Albie Ray Smith and Ed Cabmel. And um, then when my company moved from Boston out to uh, Venice, California, because we needed more personnel and you couldn't find fil enough film personnel in Boston, we, uh, I hooked up with Richard Taylor and that group that he headed over at Robert Abel. And Richard was also involved with I, And uh, we were all excited about computer animation at the time. We were also very excited about backlit animation. If you can remember things like the 7-Up commercial and the Levi's commercial that was done at Robert Abel Studios. Um, we had done quite a bit of backlit animation at, at Lisper Studios for the logos for NBC for the Olympics. So and, can you explain um, what that is? Because I've seen backlit animation mentioned in the making of Tron, and I, I don't know really what you're, what that is. Well, you know, on an animation stand, sometimes nicknamed a down shooter, you've got a motion picture camera that shoots one frame at a time, and the artwork is put on a tabletop. But with backlit animation, you put a light under the table, and the table is made out of glass, and then parts of your artwork are open to the light underneath and you put gel it might as you can think of it as stained glass into you know the artwork and then you can put filters and change your exposure on the camera so that this stuff turns into neon and you know there was a, a spillover from the 60s the psychedelic look of the 60s had a lot of glowing artwork and, you know, most of us back then at that time were coming out of the 60s. And um, so we we were still, along with movies, trying to play catch up, if you will, with what was what had happened with music. I mean, they got so far ahead of the status quo and movies had been struggling. Um, you know, you'd have Easy Rider or the Beatles Yellow Submarine. But there really wasn't anything all that radical happening in film up until, you know, Star Wars. And um, so there was a lot of energy in the air and it, it felt like it was, you know, there wasn't a, a place to put all that energy. And because I got into computer animation, it obviously led to um, meeting a lot of people who were working in the early days on computers. And um, that had a big influence on the story. I mean, I went up to Xerox Park in 1979 and was one of the first people to, you know, see what the earliest manifestations of, you know, laptop computing and personal computing was. And when I went there, there were only two people that showed up that month. One was Stephen Jobs and I was the other. <laughs> and, uh, it was amazing. Yeah, it, I, I think tr the early Tron script was the first first script to be uh, exist on a word processor. So, wow. <laughs> but pre final draft, I'm sure. Yeah, fortunately <laughs> for us. Um, yeah. So, but it, it's interesting because looking back at it, you realize, oh, the future was here, as William Gibson says, you know, the future is not evenly distributed. 
So that, you know, we didn't think of it this way, uh, the way I think of it now, which is, oh, there were pockets of people and places that were already in the future and the rest of the world wasn't. So, and you have to understand, it's, it's hard to imagine this, but some of the things that have occurred were considered the enemy or the worst thing that could happen back in the, at that time. Um, you know, part of what the Tron story deals with is a, is a computer system that steals all your personal information. Right. If you had said to someone back then, uh, you, we're going to willingly, you know, hand over our, all our personal information. We hope you take it and put it into the system. We, you know, everybody would have said that's nuts, including Philip Gay Dick. You know, no one predicted that. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, it's there's still surprises. But um, going into Disney Studios at the time with, with a script about computers was that that was already an anathema. But to then say we're going to do animation with computers, I can't tell you how severe the backlash was. I mean, we were we almost needed bodyguards at the studio <laughs> um, because uh, Disney animators are famously a very uh, clicky and uh, exclusive bunch. They don't want interlopers, right? Yeah, that we were. We were might as well have been vampires. <laughs> I mean, I, I was so happy that the project that all of us and as most of my team made the transition. Ironically, a couple of years before, I went out to Disney and met with some young animators and said, if you want to do something exciting, come over to my place in Venice. And they did. And then they ended up making it, completing the loop by going back to Disney when Tron ended up back at Disney. I mean, Bill Croyer and Jerry Reese and Brad Bird worked at Lisberger Studios. So um, it, it was interesting. But, you know, you we had all grown up on Disney films and it, it was after a while, I thought, well, this has worked out. You know, fate has stepped in and made this possible because even though the traditionalists at Disney Studios, particularly in animation and to a certain degree in live action, were opposed to what the film was and how we planned on making it, it still felt great that it was at Disney Studios. And the the ones that were excited about making it, the old department heads, were some of the classiest hardest working, coolest people I've ever met. I mean, that was the old guard. And, you know, I, I think about them. I miss them. It's, uh, they were a different breed. And I remember one of them said, you know, working on Tron, once we were up and running and really, you know, in the midst of making the movie, he said, it feels like the old days, you know, he said, everybody thinks when Walt was here that we were so assured that we knew what we were doing. He said it was, we were going flat out and there was so much experimenting happening. And, uh, you know, I had nostalgia for, I felt nostalgia for that. In, in other words, it's it, to me, Coming out of animation, looking at Disney animation over the years, I just had a sense that 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 was true, that that studio was really trying to 
break barriers down artistically and in production. And, um, you know, we, it was, that was verified by some of these old timers saying, this feels great that we're trying something new. Yeah, well, you think of like Fantasia, you can sense the the the, the, uh, the sense of adventure and experimentation, and that they wanted to push boundaries. And then, like totally. like you mentioned, these other uh, movies that they were you know schlock for kids that that they had lost that that uh, sense of yeah. adventure. Well, even in the you know in the, it, they tried with certain films like uh, the Black Hole, but they weren't really as up to speed as they needed to be in terms of, you know, some of the effects technology. So, and what we were doing on, on uh, Tron had never been attempted before, not just in terms of CG, but in terms of blowing up the, every frame of the 70 millimeter footage and then treating that as a animated movie. And that's what worked so well at Disney because it, we couldn't have done it anywhere else. I mean, if you had gone into, you know, Warner Brothers or Paramount or any of these places and said, look, we're going to have 300,000 or 400,000 frame blowups, you know, including the uh, underlying frame and then all the various frames that were pieces of artwork and codalists that were added to that. Um, and we're going to expose on average each frame of this movie on an animation stand 18 times, they would have said that's absurd. And, but, you know, Disney was used to making animated movies. So these numbers, as insane as they were, were not that crazy to Disney Studios. And um, it, it worked out shockingly well. Okay, so let's get into the technical aspect. And I've read about it, and I still don't understand it. I don't think I'll ever understand it. But but I want to try to understand it and help the audience okay. understand it. Okay. okay. The first thing that well, like, it, it's actually pretty yeah. simple. Okay. We'll go ahead and ask your first question. Well, the first thing I assumed was, well, oh, this is the first computer animated film, but in fact, there were no computers strong enough to animate three D imagery. So you were actually making individual images on a computer and hand animating them. Is that right? Well, no, that's not totally true. Okay, uh, okay, okay we'll, we'll, we'll back up. Well, the, I'll take it in sort of levels, which is the, the, the biggest problem that one had from a production standpoint is compositing. Um, you know, it, it's, it's like, to quote John Lennon, I wonder if you can imagine, you know, no compositing. <laughs> it, it's, it's, there was no way to put all of this together. So other than green screen and, you know, green screen, if you do 50 shots on green screen, you, you know, it's already a killer. If you have 150, it's, you know, forget about it. And that's what Star Wars had to take on and and, um, and they hated it. So and, but we we didn't have 50 or 150. We had about a thousand special effects shots and we had to do it in under nine months, which is also completely insane. But. So we needed a way to composite all of this, to put the the computer animation together with the live action and the effects animation. And the, the only way to do it was to turn it into an animated movie. And by that, I mean to treat it frame by frame. And um, once, you, once you break it down that way, you can really 
get into it on many different levels and things sort of find a, a, a common ground. Um, so we did blow up every frame when we were doing our computer animation. Um, that was that was interesting because they they totally had the ability to render 3D objects. That wasn't the problem. The problem was there was no way for them to show them as film in real time. So what we what they would do is, you know, and this is still true to a certain extent today, they had to render everything frame by frame and then they would photograph it um on a on a with a animation camera and then it would end up being moving a moving video image but there was never a way even in low res even in wireframe to see any moving image before you did this whole laborious pro process so if you think of something like the light cycles um bill croyer and jerry reese they they had no they had nothing. They basically had to sit down with a grid and say to the computer at coordinates and then enter the coordinate numbers. We want this object, which is rendered, we want it to tilt X number of degrees and then to tilt back X number of degrees. And then in the next frame, it's going to be over here. And they, they never could see anything moving. Okay. And so they would enter all these coordinates all these numbers into the computer and the computer would render these frames and then they would have to photograph it frame by frame by frame. And sometimes and in the final version, it would take hours per frame, many hours sometimes. And then for the first time, one would see it moving. Okay. Are so they there literally was no like photographing it off of a monitor? Yes, they are literally photographing it off of a monitor. So how does okay? it look so pristine in the final print? Well, it, it's, you know, that that's really not that much of a problem. You know, they're high quality monitors and uh, it's the cameras are also super high quality. And so you, it's, you can control the light levels and that's not really an issue. And it's a flat field of focus. So getting that quality at that point is is really not the problem. And then so, for instance, just so you know, there was no way to deal with all of this. There was no way to send it to anyone. So in the case of, of Magi working on, let's say, the light cycles in Elmsford, New York, they would finally render up a frame of a light cycle, and then they would take a Polaroid of it, and then they would stick that Polaroid into the snail mail, and I would get it three days later, and I would look at the Polaroid and say, I want the back wheel moved back two inches or whatever. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And, and there was there was no way to get an image off one of their monitors and get it to me in California, it, you know, other than to take a photograph and send it through the mail. So, I mean, we would then, and this gets into the compositing, we we could then take the uh, the rendered backgrounds off of a computer screen and do those as frame blowups and put those and put our live action actors over those CG backgrounds. And, uh, and since the whole thing was stylized the way it was, um, it, it all blended together. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, looking back at it, it was a little bit like jumping off a cliff and building an airplane on the way down to the ground. <laughs> so it's very appropriate for Dumbo. Um, so, you know, we, we did the impossible and I think there were a couple reasons it worked. I think it worked because we were first, um, the level of excitement, you know, artists, they, I don't care what anybody, they enjoy being first. I know we're doing a lot of sequels these days in Hollywood, but there is an excitement that comes with being first because you can't be directly compared to what's come before. I think that's one of the issues that Tron had to deal with, that people wanted to compare it, and it it, it was its own film. Um, so, yeah, it's... There was a, an enormous amount of excitement, and because there was nothing like it, we knew we had to plan it. And there were no redos. I mean, the, we didn't have time for redos. I mean, there were some redos, but I think we had a redo factor overall of like a thousand shots of maybe a hundred of them got a second chance. And by, you know, if, if you compare that to modern filmmaking where CG is so powerful, I mean, every shot is redone a hundred times. Sometimes it's done three days before the thing is released. So it was a different attitude about what one had to commit to up front. And, but the, the, that's what computers have changed. You know, they, they, you know, my, my son just had a baby 10 days ago and we were talking, he was said to me, you know, when we have a question about our little baby, we go to the internet and there is a million answers available. And when our son, my son was a baby, there was no internet. And so, you know, flying blind, I mean, yes, you could go to the library, you could go to the bookstore, you could buy a book about babies, you could look up things in your encyclopedia, but it wasn't like it is now where, you know, you get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm going to have scrambled eggs for breakfast. I better do a search for what's the best way to make scrambled eggs. Right. Everything is, you know, because of the information that's available, everything is loaded up front with information. And back then it was the other way around. You, you, you got used to flying in the blind, you know, flying blind in the darkness and hoping you know, when you get through the clouds, that's where the landing strip would be. Okay, let me ask another uh, technical question. The, you've So you're blending in humans with this imagery, right? Yeah. And um, certain sequences like the, the Hyalai sequence. You're entering a big arrow, Flynn. I'm going to have to put you on the game, Brent. Games? You want games? I'll give you games. <laughs> comes uh, early on after Jeff Bridges is sucked into the computer, which is beautifully 
executed, I must say, when he turns into those uh, pixels. And um, and then there's a sort of uh, a psychedelic a sequence where uh, it's just sort of going through a tube. Um, it's so uh, effective and uh, just holds up. Amazing. Anyway, then he's in there and he's uh, he's put to the test and uh, he's he's put into a kind of high lie environment against another guy. And um, and he kind of proves his mettle and that he's not to be uh, screwed with. So how much of that scene is computer? How much is it hand-drawn? How much is it live action? And how did you put that scene together? Well, the basic structure of the film was um, uh, based to a certain degree on what Wall, what Disney Studios used to do with their animated movies, which would, they they put it, 10 minute live action short in the front of the movie, 10 or 12 minutes, something like that. And then they'd have, you know, a 70 minute animated movie. And um, we kind of mimicked that in a way because we had a live action section to the film at NCOM and the Flynn's Arcade. And then we got into, you know, the, the Tron world. And so, in that left us about 70 minutes inside cyberspace and uh which is funny because no you know that word existed back then but no one used it because the word cyber oh it was used on on uh, horror movies that dealt with brains (laughs) so we we strenuously avoided the word cyber back in 1980 (laughs) so um I would say out of the 70 minutes in the electronic world, um, we probably had somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes of pure CG. Okay. And that was spread throughout. So I I can't off the top of my head, break down a sequence like the highlight sequence, which incidentally, that was because we started developing this in Boston and and Rhode Island is next door. We used to go down there and watch highlight because highlight was big in Rhode Island. But um, (laughs) yeah, so you you have to sprinkle that 20 minutes through and, and obviously some sections like the light cycles is all CG except for the shots with the actors where they're ca- the cowling on the bike is a still piece of art. Um, but, and, you know, the the large exterior shots of the Solar Sailor or the MCP, those are all fully CG. And, um, but then also the background plates, as I said, for quite a few of the shots with the actors were also generated by computer. So you've got live action actors that have gone through the codolith process and then been, you know, hand colored, basically what's hand colored almost. And then they're overlaid on top of CG backgrounds. So um, there is more CG due to that. Uh, And then on top of it, things like the discs and uh, the bit, or well, the bit was full CG, but we did have the ability to take something like the bit, which was full CG, and overlay that into the re-photography of the live-action frame blow-ups. So in a shot like that, you are mixing the live-action and the little CG aspect the bit being um, the little uh you know r2d2 stand-in yeah, yeah that little thing yeah uh, so okay so the the glowing lines on their suits that's hand-drawn or computers it, it's not so much hand-drawn as it is 
Um, it is by hand. There's an irony here that the movies made digitally by hand uh, back then <laughs> um, with our own little digits. Um, <laughs> what happens is, you know, we apply the circuitry to the suits as black lines, and then we make codalists that are that are like black and white frame blowups, but of super high contrast. And um, and then we do positives and negatives of those. So where there were black circuit lines, there's now spaces and the suits are black. And then on a separate exposure on the animation stand that uh, that is just for the circuitry, and we would have a separate exposure for the eyes and a separate exposure for every color and a separate exposure for the hands, what it, it goes on and on and on. And as those exposures are done, you control the amount of diffusion. So you can make things glow, you can make the light more powerful. Um, and, you know, you have to do an enormous amount of, you know, testing, which we had to do very quickly. I mean, it, the gang that came over from Robert Abel Studios over in Hollywood, um, they were there, there were, I guess, about 10 of them, and each one was assigned you know, their portion of the film as a supervisor. And they did a phenomenal job because no one else could have pulled it off in the time they did, but they were experienced with backlight. I mean, there were many places in town that did backlight logos for TV and that sort of thing. But the scale of what we were attempting was, it was intimidating to them. I won't say that they went, oh yeah, this is a cakewalk. Everybody thought I was kind of nuts, but um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I just felt that the process was so solid and that Disney Studios had so much capability that once we got the system ironed out, we were going to be able to accomplish an amazing amount in a short amount of time. The fact that we did these thousand shots in under nine months I think in the last month we did, you know, like 400. So what ha you just ramp up and ramp up and get better at it and better at it. And then unfortunately, just when you really got the system down, the movie's over. And, you know, one of my regrets is that because the schedule was so tight, we were really as experimental as the film is and was, we really never did get a chance to experiment. And, uh, we certainly, you know, the script had to be locked down like no script has ever been locked down. I mean, we couldn't change a single thing because once we started shooting, the commitment was total because we couldn't afford either financially or time-wise to throw a single frame away or change anything. So um, there were no previews. Um, we had to shoot the storyboards because we had to be efficient. I had to shoot the storyboards. And when we had to lock the movie three weeks after principal photography and there were no previews. And when we locked the movie three weeks after principal, none of the effects had been done. None of the color had been done. There was no CG in it and there was no hand-drawn animation in it. So basically, one looked at this black and white frame blow up version um, for the entire electronic world. And 
I had to say, that's it, lock it, every frame, boom. We can't change a single thing. We can't add anything, no reshoots, not one line of dialogue can change, boom. And that's what we did. And uh, I have to say that, you know, I was, there were times when I was somewhat worried um, about whether this was all going to work, but um, I was never distraught about it because I, it, it just felt so right. It felt right to be at Disney. It felt, I knew these, this team that I had around me was the best in the world. I'd worked on this script for years. Um, we had done so much pre-production before going to the studio. And, um, and when, when the individual frames started to show up and, and we didn't get to really see any of the frame blowups or any of the computer man animation for months. So, you know, I didn't see what that stuff was going to look like till principal photography was over because we had a system that could, you couldn't mimic the system. The, the system of the frame blowups and the CG and the backlight, all that stuff could only be done with the equipment that we were building to do it, which wasn't going to be ready till principal photography was complete. So I had to imagine what all this stuff might look like and how it might come together, then complete the black and white shooting. And then, then for the first time, you know, one sees, oh, this is what Yori is going to look like colored. And this is what a light cycle is going to look like. Um, but at that point, basically the movie's sh shot and we're plugging this stuff in. But uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, we had artists, Peter Lloyd was doing a great job painting early on what we thought some of these scenes and moments were going to look like. And then he got really upset when the movie was done. And he said, well, it, you, you didn't make it look like what the, the painting looks like that we all had agreed on. And then I had to say, Peter, it was impossible. OK, we have we had these tools, this equipment, you know, this was the technique and that technique dictated to us what it was capable of. And we had to work within that envelope. So, yes, things look different than we had imagined. But more often than not, they look better. So, yeah, it was it was scary, but it, it was exhilarating and it was inspiring. Um, two things. Uh, one thing about the so you shot all the live action within the the, the cyber world in black and white. And um, the there was something in 70 millimeter, something yeah. um, beautifully uh, old fashioned about their faces and uh, reminding me of silent films, really. Um, I don't know if that's intentional. Yeah, Metropolis. Yeah. Yes, it had that. Uh... No, that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's a, another example of this, of working within the envelope of the existing technology. Um, we, we went to 70 millimeter compared to 35 millimeters so that we would have the best resolution, the highest resolution on those flame, frame blowups. If we had blown up 35 millimeter frames, it would have been so grainy that it, it would have been, um, I think, really difficult to uh, to accept it. But at 70 millimeter, it was the, the grain structure in the film was fine enough that it um, 
it actually, you know, created that that silent movie era feeling, which was, you know, we were lucky that some of this stuff worked out. I mean, we were creating a bridge from the analog world to the digital world in the story and in the making of it. I mean, that some of the things just overlapped. I mean, you know, Flynn gets lost in his own creation. I was, you know, basically kind of Flynn in the lost in my own creation of making the movie. I mean, Flynn had to deal with all this CG for the first time. I had to deal with the CG for the first time. Flynn needed, you know, help people to help him. There were other champions. It was, we were sort of telling the story of making Tron, um, in the script of Tron. And, uh, which I think contributed to the uh, to the energy that we all felt. And, and I just want to say, I mean, because we're talking, we're emphasizing the technical aspect, but let's talk about st story and character for a second, all important, which is that people said, well, Tron was too far out. What was really too far out about Tron was that we had a female lead, Cindy Morgan, play a computer programmer in 1980 that was a heavyweight within the Encom computer company, okay? In 1980, <laughs> if you went into any computer company and found a, a, a young woman working there who was number three or four in the company, I don't think so, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Pushing boundaries. And plus, she, they relied on her to navigate the system, okay? Picture that one, okay? You know, a bunch <laughs> of computer geeks, you know, Elon Musk and the PayPal group are going, hey, we need some, bring some young lady in here to help us navigate the system. I don't think so. <laughs> we you know um, that, that was the most it turns out the most far out and unacceptable thing about the whole movie <laughs> did anyone object i mean I, I like i say you know the the people that could object the 40 year olds were were still embarrassed of trying to answer basic questions to their 10 year old kids <laughs> that's too granular <laughs> <laughs> um okay i, I want to get to the story and the people but one more question the uh you said you didn't know what the the light cycles are going to look like now um they were famously designed by sid mead i became obsessed with sid mead about uh eight years ago and i got to meet him uh and be in his living room uh before he died which was uh, such an amazing thrill but of course he's the uh, brilliant futurist artist who did things in um uh, any influential uh, movies. Um, but um, it, it, can you talk at all about uh, how he designed for the film? I I can't talk about Sid, but you'll have to excuse me if I start to cry. Oh, okay. Um, and same with Mobius, but I'll try, which is that, uh, uh, and incidentally, Mobius used to call Sid a genius, and I don't think Mobius called many people genius. I know he never <laughs> called me a genius, so... <laughs> Um, well, Sid is a, was an absolutely unique, um, amazing person. He, he, you know, when you watch Sid work, it wasn't as if the artwork was his, the final product was his principal concern. Unlike any other artist I've ever worked with, his principal concern was how to think about it. 
And he would think about things in such depth and detail. Mm -hmm. And the artwork was almost a sort of side effect. It's like, oh, I've thought this thing through, then therefore that. And the that was the piece of artwork. Most artists, you know, the focus is this is the piece of artwork and they think about it and they draw it at the same time. Sid's brain was, you know, the driving force. And um, one of the things that worked out really well with, with these great artists like Sid and, and uh, Mobius and, and Peter Lloyd is that when we were developing it, we had a great staff of artists in-house at Lisper Studios, guys that have been with me for years. Um, Roger Allers went on to co-direct Lion King. And as I said, we had... Uh, and John Norton, who originally conceived of the bit, and uh, we had uh, Bill Croyer and Jerry Reese. And, you know, so we had worked up most of the visuals for Tron as to the as far as we could take it. And uh, it was I think that worked out really well, because then when we the studio said, you know, you can get anybody you want. And uh, I should mention that my producing partner, Donald Kushner, who was the guy that originally um, call, contacted Disney um, and got that, that started, uh, he talked to the studio and the studio agreed that, you know, they were going to go for the best artists we could get. And uh, I wanted Sid Mead and I wanted Mobius and, and they got them. And, uh, Working with them was one of, you know, the great pleasures of of my career. And um, the thing was, we never handed them a blank piece of paper. When when we got those guys, we had already we said, look, this is as far as we've taken this idea. We think this is pretty good. And you know how that works. You know, that kind of extremely talented person will say, yeah, that's nice. But you know what? I think this could be a lot better if this, 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 you know, what people always say about one script. And uh, so um, then, you know, they took it to the next level, but they never had to start from, you know, a blank piece of paper. And uh, and that was good, too, because Sid, for instance, he never did redos. When, you know, Sid did the light cycle, you know, he designed the light cycle, that was it. But I had to make changes in the light cycle because, the, you know, the, I had to make changes in almost everybody's artwork because it was too complicated for the, uh, the computers. I mean, if you look, look at the recognizers, which were designed by uh, John Norton, they don't have a single curve in the whole structure of a recognizer. There's a reason for that because the computers couldn't handle any more information and curves were beyond them. So they got back to us and said, if you want a structure like this flying around in 3D, it can't have any curves. And uh, I had to take quite a few curves out of the light cycles. I had a trick that I used to do, which I I was imagined squeezing these structures between two panes of glass. And so they, there might have been curves, but after they were squeezed down by these glass walls, a lot of the curves were eliminated. So, um, yeah, it was great working with those guys. And we had Mobius to storyboard the movie. And, you know, Mobius was a very spiritual man and, and not just a great artist. And, you what know, was he uh, known for before Tron? Because uh, I'm not that familiar with Mobius. Heavy Metal Magazine. You know, that's, uh, that started in France. That was all him. 
Berlin okay. Metal. All right. I did not put that together. Okay. And uh, and he was here for a couple months and he stayed in Westwood at the hotel in Westwood. And when I drove in to the studio every morning, I picked up Mobius and we drove into the studio together. And uh, yeah, but somebody else got him home because I stayed at the studio till about 11 o'clock every night. Um, so that 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 fundamental like a uh, poster image of of. Um... Uh, of Tron with his arms. It's kind of like, almost like a Christ-like image and a, uh, the disc flying up and the girl to the side. Was that his his vision? Yeah, yeah. He, he did, uh, you know, pencil drawings. And then like every other piece of artwork, uh, it went through our process, you know, where the whole staff, the Tron staff would do their, you know, make the magic happen. And uh and add the colors and the glow and, you know, and Richard Taylor was instrumental in that poster. Um, so yeah, what we were doing was creating a lot of artwork and then running it through a process that we, we use to create that look. Um, we, we never really had a single piece of artwork done that actually looked like an, a frame of the film. <laughs> But there is a shot in the film where he's his arms are in the air and the disc is going up, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, that's that's a completely different layout and a, and a different shot. But um, got it. Yeah, I'm just saying that to to generate that look, there we couldn't do it early on because we really didn't know what the tools and the process was going to look like in this final form. And um, so we couldn't we couldn't really imagine it. And then if somebody tried to imagine it, we ended up doing it. We couldn't match it that way. So it was it was always an interesting thing to see where where all this ended up. But I would just wanted to get back to Mobius and say that just follow up on that thought. I mean, he was instrumental in the storyboarding to, you know, add the, the spiritual vibe to the first Tron film. Um, you know, I was going that way, but he, he gave me quite a bit of confidence that, you know, that we could do that in terms of the storyboards. And, uh, when I went to the premiere in Paris, uh, Mobius saw the film for the first time. He said, well, you shot my storyboards. I thought that was very funny. I said to him, you know, John, I'm, I'm not stupid. I didn't, I didn't hire Mobius to do my storyboards and then throw your storyboards away. So, yeah. Um, I, I was going to say the, uh, the logo is, uh, Sid Mead's creation. Yeah. Sid designed that logo. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just something about the word Tron that is so satisfying. I, I don't know what, how you landed on it as the title, but, um, it's just so, uh, it feels so, you know, uh, yeah. monolithic. That, that, <laughs> that actually, that, uh, suffix, and I may, maybe sometimes it was used in the past as a prefix is, it was always associated with, you know, uh, breakthrough electronics and and futuristic technology. So, but normally it's connected to, you know, an, an underlying word. So basically, they just took that that aspect and you know made it the word. So that's where it comes from. It's not really an acronym for trace on, and you know, it's. It, it was a standalone um, title right, from it's the like beginning. Right, the suffix yeah. of electron and neutron, yeah. but it's something about just by itself. It gives it a whole new um, 
Yeah. Something. Je ne sais quoi. Um, all right. I, I guess we have to talk about human beings now. So Jeff Bridges, you could have had anyone, um, but you chose my favorite actor of all time. Um, but how did how did he get the part? Well, it's ironic that you should say I could have had anyone because I, and this <laughs> is no slight against Disney Studios at the time. But basically, we really couldn't have anyone. OK, when <laughs> when I mean, I was you know, I had worked primarily in animation. This was my first live action feature. And, you know, when we called up actors and said we're doing a movie at Disney Studios and it's about video, there's video games in it and computer animation. The next sound you heard was click. Um, basically no one wanted to be in this movie. And, and, um, so, and it was interesting because Jeff came in, I'd always liked Jeff a lot and he came in and he was so open to it. And, and there was, there was this feeling that he, he liked the fact that it was so far out, which was the problem that everybody else had, that it was too far out. And, and he was up for it. And, and at the time, I was so relieved and so happy that, you know, somebody felt the way I did that I said, okay, Jeff, you got to do this. And he said, great. And then afterwards, the studio gave me hell because they said, you can't do that. You can't agree to an actor without running the whole thing by us first. So that was my naivete back then. But, you know, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff is unbelievably talented and courageous as an actor. But I will say, you know, he... For some strange reason, the general audience has never accepted Jeff, let's say, at the level of a Tom Hanks. Um, for many decades, the feeling was, well, yeah, he did Tron, but his next big movie is going to be this, this, or this, or this. And really, at the end of the day, um, now that we're you know in the clubhouse turn, really, Tron is, you know, his, one could argue, his biggest film. And uh, so you you're know, saying he, he's he, that it was a, a detriment to his career having done this film. Uh, there was, I would say, in a way, um, it it didn't launch him into the stratosphere. Let's put it that way. It's uh, it and and then subsequent films were supposed to launch him in the stratosphere. And it turned out that we actually Tron was kind of in the stratosphere, but nobody knew it. And uh, so, yeah, I see. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I don't know if you know this, but um, he he was in a roundtable, Hollywood Reporter roundtable. He made a joke about Tron that went viral and suddenly Tron was trending on Twitter. This was like two weeks ago. Yeah, I know. I know about that one. Yeah. Did you see it? It was so yeah. funny. Yeah. I mean, he's like I say, he's phenomenally talented. And uh, I still don't understand why he isn't as big as Tom Hanks. I mean, he's just as talented and, uh, you know, certainly just as handsome, if not more. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's a mystery, but I, it was, a, it was great to have him. And, uh, I, I always have to laugh when people say, well, you know, he was so charismatic and so great in, in Tron and that, that, you know, he, he carried that movie. Well, you know, isn't that the idea of your lead actor that he does carry <laughs> the movie? I mean, it'd be all, you know, does anybody look at a Clint Eastwood movie and say, well, you know, he carried that movie, you know, without Clint Eastwood, <laughs> there wouldn't have been anything there. You know, it's like, well, yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I would say he he held his own within this yeah you know, he... ocean of effects and breakthroughs and things that could easily have swallowed up a, a, a smaller actor. To totally, um, I could, couldn't agree more with that. And but you know, there was a weird vibe on the set because you have to imagine there's stage four out at Disney, this huge stage, and it's we have the entire stage done, floor, walls, everything's done in black velvet. We had a hard time finding a place in the world that would had enough black velvet to sell to us. And then we've got, you know, all these 2Ks up on the catwalk. I mean, just dozens of them shooting down these, you know, spotlight beams on the, these actors in these costumes against all the black, because we had to eliminate everything in the background except the actors. And it was, in some ways, it was traditional theatrical. I mean, an all black giant stage and a spotlight. And so you'd have someone like the great David Warner and, you know, here's David Warner. He didn't know anything really about computers and it, it didn't slow him down for a second or video games. He would just stand there in the spotlight and with this commanding performance, make you believe that everything he was saying was, you know, essential to your existence. And, you know, it was like Shakespeare to him. And it, it was so interesting. I mean, it's sort of boosted our confidence to work with, a, you know, some of these great actors. And uh, yeah. David Warner, of course, he was the, the villain of the, uh, the piece. And isn't he also the, the uh, MCP, uh, the voice of MCP? Yeah, he, he's the puppet of the MCP. And, you know, that gets into the whole thing, talking about characters, about... I mean, one of the things that I find particularly peculiar about Tron looking back at it all these years is how I gravitated to the agent program, if you will, you know, the the the, the chatbot entity. Okay, clue. Tonight we check everything in the right hand column. Come on, come on. Where are you? Clue. Yes, sir. Clue, we don't have much time left to find that file. This is top priority. Yes, sir, I know, sir. This isn't just correcting my bank statement or phone bill problem again. This is a must. I understand, sir. Now, I wrote you. Yes, sir. I taught you everything I know about the system. Thank you, sir, but I'm not sure no that... Buts, clue. That's for users. Even in the opening, there's Flynn, and he's sending Clue in to try to get this data, which, you know, is hidden in the system. And at the time, it seemed like, you know, a kind of... A, a dramatic necessity. And then, you know, if you're going to portray this whole system to portray it that way, but then there's this weird synchronicity with reality where, you know, all these years later, we're now talking about the same thing. I mean, yeah, we have, you know, chatbots and we ask them questions, but, you know, some of the, 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 tech giants are saying, you know, it's only, a, you know, we're right around the corner from having, you know, our individual bots that are going to do our bidding. And, and that comes, you know, full circle with Tron. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting how we were in essence, you know, mimicking a reality um, out of necessity and then that would happen again with the actual technology. Strange. And there's actual conversations in, in the film about how, the, you know, the, the programs are going to start thinking for themselves. And, and so much of the plot is about how they don't lost the user to, they want to break free from the user, which is so uh, evocative of, of what's going on right now with AI and, and everyone's 
you know, nerves and, and, uh, it's such a turning point right now. It feels technologically and Tron was speaking totally. To and, uh, you know, it's, um, the, the jury is out and I think it's going to be out for quite some time. I mean, are, and, you know, there, Tron three, which, you know, will happen is, is dealing with this very question, you know, what is our relationship with our creation? And uh, if it's, you know, if it's going to be smarter than us, is that going to be a positive or is that going to be a negative? So the film comes out and um, from what I understand, it wasn't uh, it was far from a bomb, but it didn't reach the what the levels that Disney had hoped for. Is, is that an accurate assessment? The, that That's an accurate assessment. I mean, it's... Um, Things seem to have their own momentum. I mean, the Disney films had their own momentum for a long time, and Jeff had his own momentum, and um, this kind of experimental cinema had its own momentum. I I really feel that it was a shock to the world that Disney had done something that wasn't based in nostalgia and that was this avant-garde. I think there were... I mean, you have to understand, Disney was not experience with releasing a film like this. I One can make an argument that no studio would have been, but the film was highly experimental and the audience needed some um, awareness of that so they would know what to expect, that this was more of a fantasia. Um, I think, I think there was also a trick that I think the studio didn't quite get. Um, there, there was some, there were some in the, within the studio that were, were kind of didn't know what to do with Tron when it was in production. And then they came on board at the very end and they didn't keep their powder dry when they should have. And then all of a sudden there was too much hubbub. And then looking back at it, you had, you know, Spielberg was so clever with E.T. where he said, this is just my little home movie, you know, I hope you like it. And and even George Lucas was so clever. I mean, when Star Wars came out, it was like, this is just, you know, our little science fiction film and we don't want to hype it. And we just, you know, hope you like it. And, you know, obviously one, if you have something that is, you know, that you feel really confident with, Back at that time, you were better off presenting it to the audience and saying, you know, you have to discover it. You get the thrill of discovering it. And, um, you know, I wish Tron had had been released that way. But, you know, they some people at the studio just got too excited, ironically, and uh, started making comparisons with Star Wars. And I don't think that was a valid comparison or a smart thing to do. It, It wasn't a Star Wars film. Star Wars is dripping with nostalgia. And um, I mean, there was some nostalgia in Tron, just the basic story structure and some of the visuals, like you say, the black and white Metropolis vibe um, and some of the characters or archetypes. But, you know, it was it was too avant-garde at the time. And also um, it came out at a weird time that, you know, that summer was completely dominated by E.T., I mean, E.T. was the only movie that went up, I think, in history. Every weekend it did, for 13 weekends in a row, did more business than the weekend before, which was unheard of. And uh, so, you know, it was a little bit like, you know, 
the world was headed you know to et and that was very touchy feely and then we became that you know that computer film that didn't appreciate the human condition and uh which was you know a vibe uh, a, a problem <laughs> yeah that was a problem so and it was you know but you know, you you bought it. You were ten years old, and it had an influence on you that lasted. And as time plays out, the significance of the film um, continues to rise. And so, you know, it that's that's you know almost this the standard story. That's every once in a while something gets made. It's too far ahead of its time. And then it takes years for it to be accepted or to find its legs. And um, that's kind of what happened with Tron. Absolutely. I mean, the, the very definition of avant-garde. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because at that magic moment in the early 80s, all of a sudden, think about the Disney Corporation, the sleepy Disney Corporation back then. They had the number one, you know, one of the number one arcade game was Tron. I mean, that arcade game made so much money for Disney that it pretty pretty much covered the cost of making the whole movie. No okay? kidding. Yeah. And uh, they weren't in the video game business till Tron. And this is, you know, and all of a sudden they found themselves number one. And then you look back and you, and and they were at that point in time cutting edge, you know, in terms of assessing where we were going with this technology. And my regret about the release and the, the backlash is that I think it would have been better for everybody if Disney Corp had been more involved with the internet and more involved with com the birth of, you know, the personal computer and all of that right from the beginning, okay? I think they would have been a good influence. And, uh, and I think, you know, we could have, uh, we maybe today would be in a better place if they had been involved earlier. But in a way, you know, the public told them, no, you know, we don't want you in this. This is too cutting edge for Disney. And they backed off. And, uh, and then, you know, the next administration came in and they had their own ideas and, you know, they weren't interested in Tron. And, and, uh, you know, that that is my regret, because, like I say, I think it would have been good for technology, for the Internet, for the game business, if if Disney Corp had, you know, not backed off. Well, at that point, along those lines, you mentioned going to a very early uh a version of Pixar in developing the film, but how did it uh, affect uh, the Pixar we know today? Well, you know, I knew those guys when they were in Long Island and I saw their work back then and they had, they wanted to work on Tron and I wish they could have, but they had at that point signed a, you know, a deal to work on Star Trek. I think it was to, com uh, to provide computer graphics. And so we couldn't get them. And, um, but, you know, we, you know, to somebody once, a friend of mine once said, you know, Tron threw itself on the computerized barbed wire and so that, you know, others could storm ahead. And in a way, we kind of did that. Uh, I, I think um, it was a very tough subject. It was a tough sell. People, excuse me, people today do not realize how much, 
you know, backlash there was against computers in the early 80s. And uh, I mean, we were, you know, even ahead of, you know, Steve Jobs at this point. I mean, the, the people didn't know what the Internet was. The, the networking that's in the story of Tron and then is suggested in the last scene when all the beams light up, that was based on the ARPANET, you know, the Defense Department Internet. When the MCP says, you know, I've, I've invaded all these systems, he's talking about, you know, that network, not, not the network of users. And I'll tell you one funny story. I mean, one of the executives at Disney actually, you know, after the film was completed, he, I, ta I talked to him. He thought I had invented the term user. Okay. <laughs> you know, so just the basic terminology like user was unheard of. And there's a character named uh, Ram. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, uh, we had, you know, whatever, 250, you know, uh, kilobytes of, uh, you know, of memory. I mean, your phone has a thousand times more computing power than we had to make the whole movie. <laughs> um, one memory I'll share with you is that in 2010, I was the one time I went to... Um, to uh, Comic-Con, and uh, they had this activation uh, for the upcoming sequel, Tron Legacy, um, and it was incredible. You had to get a coin, and you go into this full-scale arcade, and then the door, the, the wall or the door opens in back, and then suddenly you're in Tron world. You get to see 3D renderings of the new light cycles, and the Daft Punk soundtrack was uh, pounding. I don't know if you walked through that activation, but it was one of the best things I've ever done in terms of that kind of thing. Um, and um, and then, of course, the movie came out and um, that Daft Punk uh, soundtrack is on my regular listening rotation. Uh, I know you were involved to a certain extent. Can you talk a bit about that? And did you interact yeah. with Daft Punk? What, what you described is uh, pretty much like the Tron ride at Disney World, where, you know, there you go in, you enter the grid, there's an activation, you see the light cycles for the first time. It's an incredible reveal, really amazing. And, uh, and, and then you hear the Daft Punk music. So, yeah, um, great stuff. Uh, Daft Punk were fans of Tron one and, uh, and then it was, you know, Sean and Joe got them for the sequel and it was phenomenal. I mean, come on. It was just, um, what the, the work they did was just beyond expectations. And, uh, yeah, we're all really proud of that. I mean, it was Joe, Joe Kaczynski who, you know, wanted to get them from day one and that was the right thing to do. Um, I, they were fanatical about making, you know, making it as good as they could. And they worked on the soundtrack for a very long time. And uh, I, the one thing that comes to mind, you know, I, I talked to them they at one time and I said, you know, when when we were working on the first film, it was it was really difficult to make things look perfect. Everything came out so funky. 
And, uh, and I said, and now all these years later, working on the second film, it's the exact opposite. You know, everything is, is comes out so perfect, <laughs> you know, with these tools that, you know, you have to add the funk factor back in. <laughs> so, and, uh, they laughed at that, but yeah, that <laughs> and they're the funk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. You go to Disney World and there's the Tron ride. It's so majestic. It's so huge and and you feel so small. And that's what I love about that ride. You feel so small. I mean, it, you know, this is, I never thought of, even though one goes into a computer, I never thought of that as a literal reduction in size. I always thought of the world inside the, of cyberspace as vast, of, you know, borderline infinite and uh you know some people think oh well you're inside a chip no i don't think of it that way at all but when you go on the tron ride at disney world you feel so tiny and you move so fast on that coaster it, it almost killed me but i'm over <laughs> 70 years old so uh yeah that i wanted to make sure i didn't die on the tron ride that would have not been good but well that was hard for me it was not easy i mean bob Iger says he's done did the tron ride in china over 35 times he must be in better shape than i am um so uh yeah, the idea that it's really huge in there is, you know, so great. Um, yeah, Daft Punk, what can you say? Awesome. So are are they making another sequel? What's the, the status? Yeah, the, the, the Tron team is hard at work. They're always hard at work, you know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. I cannot provide details, but uh, it's it's going to happen and uh, you know we're excited about it same director joseph kosinski no that is uh, uh, joe's busy doing other things so uh it, it'll be a, a different approach and what about you are you working on any new things yeah uh, i'm i'm uh my goal with these things as a sort of playing the obi-wan role is to say the one sentence that really has you know an impact. So I, I, I try to, I try to say something that is, is useful to them without getting into the weeds. And, uh, they, you know, I'd be a hypocrite if I'm over 70 years old. If, uh, when I was working on Tron one, well, I'll tell you a story about uh, older guys working on Tron 1. We shot a storyboard movie of of Tron 1, um, and which is traditional. You know, it's like early forms of previs and animation, you know, features always did that. So we took our storyboards and we filmed it. And one of Disney's nine old men, the great old men, was still out at the studio and I was so excited to show it to him because the Lord knows I could have used a mentor at that point. And uh, so I showed him our storyboard version of the first Tron movie. He, he sat there, he watched the whole thing. And then he turned to me and he said, kid, you're on your own and got up and walked out of the room. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So there's your Obi-Wan role. Um so uh, I'm I'm trying to keep my you know my input to them down to short you know sentences, but hopefully sentences that are of some use to them. 
And are you are what are you working on your own projects now or? Yeah, I, I've been working on it, trying to keep myself busy working on a science fiction book called Topeka, which uh, I have to say, back in the '90s and you know at the early 2000s, I was pretty inspired by Japanese anime. I mean, I I thought you know, I mean, the Japanese always get into everything past you know what everybody else gets in, in the level everybody else reaches. And I thought they really sort of pushed the, you know, the the envelope and it inspired me. So I've been, I've been working on something, you know, a back burner thing for years and it, hopefully it's going to be done pretty soon. It's called Topeka. Okay. I'm going to keep my eyes open for Topeka. Steven Lisberger, what a absolute thrill to hear you uh, take apart Tron for us. I mean, such a landmark, gigantic film. It, it just uh, we're all beneath in its shadow and uh it's so inspiring thank you thank you my pleasure i'll see you on the grid <laughs> yeah an incredible look uh beneath the hood of one of my favorite sci-fi movies uh, really a work of art it's on disney plus so check it out the original tron um and i'm really looking forward to the third one uh if it's indeed coming bring it. Uh, next week, we have something else pretty exciting. We have Jerry Zucker. Um, you might know him from the airplane movies, but uh, the movie we're focusing on tomorrow, it was his uh, sort of veering into more serious territory with Ghost. Yes, Ghost, uh, the 1990 blockbuster. It made uh, something like $550 million on a $20 million budget. Uh, it earned an Oscar for its screenwriter and for Whoopi Goldberg. And uh, it definitely immortalized Patrick Swayze uh, and Demi Moore. So join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. And until then, I'll see you in Hollywood. <laughs>